Good day folks, this is Shane Hasty at the Agile India Conference and I'm privileged to catch up with Linda Rising again and we're sitting out in the glorious sunshine and uh, surrounded by birds as you can hear and almost a jungle-like environment, it's, it's great. Linda, lovely to see you again. Oh Shane, I was so looking forward to seeing you here. When I saw your smiling face on the webpage, I thought, oh good, I get to catch up with Shane. Yay! The podcasts that you've done for InfoQ have been some of the most downloaded and listened to. People oh love to hear from you. Oh my. We've got a, an audience who really appreciate your way of, of looking at the world and, and helping us to make sense of things. And, and perhaps that's a, a good thing for us to segue into. Um, you were talking earlier about the Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, and how yes. it's a really, really great piece of, of work, but it's a hard read. It is. And I finally, I mean, I'm, I'm old, I'm slow. It took me a while. I've been recommending it, and I thought people would go out and buy it and read it. Well, they did go out, they did buy it, but they just haven't read it. And they're probably not going to read it because, well, you bought the book, have you? I bought the book. And, and you I read about uh, some of the pages and it's well written, is it it's, not? It's well written, yes. it's just very well heavy going. It's, it's a slog, as yeah. I would say, it's a slog and it's long. And it's so comprehensive mm. because he has really a lifetime of, uh, uh, I would say, experimental adventures mm. that he did with his colleague Amos Tversky. I think he misses him to this day. Mm -hmm. They worked together so long and they were both perfectly matched mm -hmm. so they could feed off each other. And it's probably why uh, the results are so good. It was a, an incredible pairing mm. Uh, and, setting and there's been a lot of discussion at this conference and in general about the value of pairing yes absolutely and I think that's a it's a perfect example mm -hmm. it's a shame that Amos died before the Nobel Committee decided to award a prize for their psychologists but mm -hmm. they got a prize for economics mm -hmm. so only Daniel was able to receive it because you must be alive to be a Nobel recipient so they recognize the contribution of these two guys and the impact is spreading. But nonetheless, uh, most people mm -hmm. have not got past the first 100 pages or three pages or, or maybe all they've done is to lift it and say, well, I'll wait, I'll do that later. And so what I've been thinking for this year, this my project, is that I should do a better job instead of just saying, hey, guys, get this book and read it. I should do a little translating. Mm -hmm. I should maybe even offer some concrete mm -hmm. suggestions for, uh, and that would be from me. Mm. This is not from Kahneman, because I have read, I, I don't want to act like, uh, oh, oh, I am so smart because I read the book. It's that I'm old and slow, so I had to read it several times. So I am on my third time through the book, and only now do I feel that I'm at least sort of qualified to speak uh, on behalf of Kahneman, knowing that most people are not going to have the time and energy to invest in it. It's so important. So, so what is the central that. premise? What is he He, he presents an interesting model of the mind. 
It's based around two modes that work together. He calls one of them System 1. Now, that system could also be called the unconscious. There are people who have looked at sort of a mapping of the behavior of the mind, and they say this could be the lizard brain, the very primitive brain. It's an older part. But Kahneman says there's no real mapping for him into any region of the brain. He doesn't say, oh, well, this is the brain stem, for instance. He doesn't make an attempt to do that, and he said he's not interested in that. But it is the older part of the brain. It's the fast thinking part of the brain. So in thinking fast and slow, that's the part that's fast. And it's the part that never sleeps. Mm -hmm. And I think if we really stop to think about that, we could do a better job of using it. So that's going to be part of my tips or suggestions. It's also the part where all our cognitive biases reside. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of talk, even at this conference. I've I've noticed that. Have you? Yeah, that's been a a theme that's jumped up a number of times, is recognizing these cognitive biases. and coming to the fore. Mm -hmm. More people are being aware of them, and they'll work in maybe three or four into a talk. Mm -hmm. Most prominently, that would be the confirmation bias. Everyone Mm -hmm. seems to mention that. So system one is the seat of all of those biases. That's where they reside. But it's also the home for all our expertise. So when you learn how to do something, and we could take something as simple as driving a car, in the beginning you struggle with it and you can't just do it. You have to consciously think about it. But once you become an expert at driving a car, you don't really have to think about it. And probably you've gotten into a car and then you've arrived at your destination and you weren't even aware that you, do you have a clutch in your car anymore? No, no. And at one time we did that you put on the brake, Mm -hmm. uh, that you did any steering. You didn't have to do any conscious thinking about that. It was all done by system one. So anything we've learned how to do, and that includes all our expertise, not just little things like driving a car, but um, all the elements of our profession, they're all stored in system one. So that's one part of the model. The other part is system two. He did not come up with these names, which I do not like, and he makes a reference to a couple of other people who and he builds on their work. So he didn't come up with System 1 or System 2. System 2 is the conscious mind. You might associate it with a prefrontal cortex. It's a later part, newer part of the brain, but he doesn't necessarily want to do that. It's the part that comes online when you wake up and goes to sleep when you go to sleep. It uses an enormous amount of energy about 20 to 25% of the energy we take in goes to run system two. So it's limited. It's the conscious, scientific, linear thinker. It's the slow part. So thinking fast and slow is the system one, fast, system two, slow. And since that's what happens when we wake up, system two comes online, we think that's what thinking is. And since we have no awareness of system one, we often describe it as 
oh, I feel in my gut. Mm-hmm. I have a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, my intuition mm-hmm. tells me. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a feeling of not controlling it mm-hmm. or not being aware of it because it is it's unconscious mm. i think alan cooper in the keynote this morning had a, a beautiful soundbite that your gut feeling is your yes. biases in action that's right yes <laughs> it is but it's also your expertise mm. in action i think maybe the people only got through the first hundred pages mm. <laughs> like me <laughs> that's as far as they got yeah. but system two is amazing mm-hmm. And it never forgets. System one. System one never mm. forgets. System okay. two, well, that's the conscious mm. part. Have you ever gotten, and you say, oh, what was the name of that? Uh-huh. Oh, I can't, oh, let's see, who was the keynoter? Was it that, that was Cooper, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. And and so we know we struggle, not just mm-hmm. old people like me, but we all struggle with remembering where system one knows, mm-hmm. never forgets. The problem is, it's very hard to communicate mm-hmm. with System 1. It's mm-hmm. inaccessible. Mm-hmm. So those are the two pieces of the mm-hmm. model mm-hmm. and their characteristics. So he's not saying it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And we are at the beginning stages of learning how mm-hmm. the mind works. Mm-hmm. So that's his proposal. And that's what the whole book is about. What's involved in those two pieces and how do they work and then the results of countless experiments that Kahneman and Tversky did but also many many others since to verify this model. Okay can we segue can we look at how this impacts and and looking around a lot of things that we we see and hear in our industry at the moment there's a buzz there's a hype there's a concern on on some pretty deep levels ethics yes Yes. Yeah. Right, wrong. Yeah. Should I do this? Is this the yeah. right decision? Yeah. Should I hire this person? Yeah. Should we develop this product? Do we let somebody in who's not exactly the way we are? Yeah. Should we just strive for diversity, the benefit of that? Yeah. And we worry about the quality of our decisions. Mm. Yeah. So these things are hard. Yes. And they're important. Yes. How do we tackle them? So, so, so let, maybe we can pick apart. Let, let's take one that building a diverse team. All right. There's evidence there that diverse teams are good. Actually, do we want to segue? Because yeah. the, that's only true for Western cultures. Ah. And I didn't know that myself. The paper has not been out that long, but mm-hmm. Japanese cultures, for instance, mm-hmm. do perfectly well in a monoculture. Okay. So it depends on the. I guess you would say the infrastructure. If the culture of the organization anyway is such that you don't need to worry about speaking out Mm -hmm. or protecting yourself or then diversity doesn't provide as much of a benefit. Mm -hmm. But in Western cultures, when we are more hierarchical, when we defer to the loudest voice in the room or the CXO, and if we have a diversity of opinions, we want to encourage those people to speak up. That's a different environment. And mm-hmm. in those cases, diversity does work. Mm-hmm. There is another paper that we could reference which says, yes, including more women mm-hmm. on a team is good, but a team of all women, mm-hmm. not so good. Okay. So it's not just women. Yeah. It's the idea of a diverse of the of these of differences view. and yes. diverse points of view. And so. in Western culture, which is where we are, yeah, 
there's definite benefit. Mm -hmm. That's measurable. You can show that. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? How do we do that? How do you do that? So normally when we hire somebody, we think about, we should do an interview. We should talk to them. Now, if we bring in Kahneman's model, what we might want to realize is that, remember the fast mm -hmm. part of the brain, as soon as we meet anybody, doesn't matter whether we're interviewing them or we just run into them at the conference and want to introduce ourselves. System one has already decided a lot of things about that person. It does it instantaneously. And the feeling that we get is we like that person. That's mm -hmm. what bubbles up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we don't always know why, mm -hmm. but we assume that it must mean that they have some characteristics that are laudable, that are positive, then if we were thinking about an interview, well, that would mean that this is somebody we might want to consider. When really, System 1 has made that decision for us based on, well, who knows? It could have been race. It could have been gender. It could have been height. could have been weight. It could have been a whole host of things that have nothing to do with the qualifications that we need in order to have a diverse team or to hire the best person for the job at all. But that we now already have a gut feeling that this person will really be the one we want to hire. Mm. Now, once System 1 has done that, it will also kick in the confirmation bias. So even if we have a well-defined hiring process, where we either give them a test or have them talk to the team or who knows what it might be, even those objective results will be filtered through the confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. And even comparing two candidates who might have the same results, we'll see the one that we already like in a more favorable light. That is, we could dismiss bad results or we could amplify those good pieces of the objective measurements. So those objective measurements, in other words, are not going to save us. So we're stuck. <laughs> so how do we do it? What do we do? You have to make sure that you involve enough people in the decision-making process. In other words, if I'm the one who's already biased, if I'm the only one who's going to make the decision, I'm not going to look at objective evidence and I'm not going to listen to other people. It has to be the job of more than one person. That's the best insurance you can ever have for anything. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that other so person we're, won't we're be biased. We're back to pairing and mothering. That's right. Absolutely. Every, we know the folks at Menlo, and don't we remember at some point they said we pair everything yeah. and even the CEO's job there are two of them mm -hmm. so and there's a good reason for that because two brains make the probability that you're going to have the same set of biases a little more unlikely it's not impossible not impossible but also the biases will be enough different so that now if you're aware that you could be biased, you can question each other. To say, I really like this candidate. The other person's job now is to say, why? Let's figure out, is it really? Yes, is it because it's a tall, blue-eyed, white male? Or, And just asking, 
those questions. And that's a system two function, by the way. System two can often override system one. Its job, in fact, is to at times step in and say, hold it. You're about to make a decision looking at only these biases and these primitive instincts that we have that are not really going to lead us to make the best kind of decision. It's hard to do that alone because our system too struggles got limited capacity whereas other people can always see our biases. It's so visible. We're so transcendent. We can't see it in the mirror. No, we can't see it in the mirror. In fact, that's why group therapy works so well. It's so easy. I don't know if you've ever been in group therapy. I never have, but you know, I can imagine looking around the room. It's oh well. It's yeah. so obvious. It's so obvious. Well, that guy, his mother's told you know, mm-hmm. and this is cheating on his wife, and you know, okay, it's so easy mm-hmm. to see others' problems, also their biases. Mm-hmm. So if you work together with the understanding that you're going to help each other make a better decision because I know Fred you do tend to mm, yeah and help my my system too can help your system to make a better decision how does this come into play then let's look at another hot topic ethics in information technology. We're we're seeing a lot of conversations about bias in machine learning systems. We're seeing the the Volkswagen. We're seeing whole lots of other bad behaviors. So one thing we could bring in at this point is the research that shows that yes, individuals can be biased. And that if you get a group of people together who share a bias, a particular bias, say say they're extremists on some position, say white supremacists, for instance, that when they're together as a group, the group process amplifies that bias. And so any group decision that's made will be worse in the direction of the bias than any one of them would have made. And that, to me, is one of the scariest things about biases because you would think if we get together to have a discussion of some sort, wouldn't we temper our feelings in the direction of the bias by listening to what someone else might say? And the answer is no. That what happens instead is that we build on those. And then we hear other people in the room express the same sentiment toward this bias, whatever it happens to be, and then we ramp it up. And then, so this is the echo chamber. It is. It's, it is. And that's the other piece of that that people are worried about now is that we only hear from people who are just like us. And that means that as a group, whether we're making an important decision as an organization or whether we're making a personal decision, whether we should carry a gun or a vote for a certain individual, that it's going to be moved in the direction of the biases we already have. And it's just making us more and more extremists. And it doesn't, whatever the position. So the extreme left, the extreme right, it works in all directions, up, down, and sideways, that only hanging out with people who agree with you means that we come away from that even more extreme.
extremists than when we went in. So the only solution for that, of course, is you've got to have somebody. And the encouraging thing is that it usually only takes one person who doesn't agree. One person who says, I think that this is wrong. I think that we're headed toward a very bad decision for Volkswagen or our company or our political party or what somebody has to say, hold it. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Solomon Ash. He was a, a Jewish psychologist whose family died in the Holocaust. And he and Stanley Milgram were good friends. They became psychologists. And he did an interesting experiment with length of lines. Mm -hmm. So we had a subject sit at a table with five other people. And he showed them a card that had some lines on it. There was a line on the left and then three lines on the right labeled A, B, and C. And the question is, are any of those lines on the right the same length as the line on the left? This is an easy question. And the way it works is the people around the table start on the left of the real subject and they say, oh, I think, yes, I think line B is the same as the line on the left. And then the next person says, yes, yes, I, I agree, it is line B. And they go around and now the real subject looks at the diagram and sees clearly, clearly, line B is the same length as the line on the left. So what's so difficult about that? Well, now he shows them another card and the same thing happens. And another card, but on the third card, something interesting happens. That if you look at the lines on the right, A, B, and C, line A is the one that's the same length as the line on the left. But to the surprise of the real subject, the person on the left said, no, ah, oh, yeah, I think it's line B again. Whereupon, the subject says, what? What? No, surely not. Surely not. It, it's so obvious that line A is the right answer, but he just said B. Oh, well, maybe the next. But no, the next person also says, yes, yes, it is line B. And now the subject begins to question his own sanity. How can it be? They're calling out a line that's clearly not the same length. And around the table, and they all say, line B, line B, line B. Have you ever been in a meeting where everyone was saying something that made no sense to you, yep. and you said, these people must be crazy. It's so obvious that the right answer is A, but they all say B, and what did you do? I probably said B. Absolutely! And that's what Solomon Ash showed, is that even as trivial a question is the length of a line. So if the group can move you to say lines that are clearly of different lengths are the same, what else? What else can they do? So it's a scary thing, but here's the happy ending, if you will. If just one, if just one of those people going around the table, if just one says, wait a minute, 
It's not B. Where's the ruler? Wait a minute. Let, let's look at this again. No, I think it's A. If just one person speaks up, then the real subject never goes along with the group. So if just one person speaks up, then the others who are hesitant, not sure, would like to go along, but no, they're not going to be the first to speak up. If just one person will tell the truth, then, okay, he will save us. Yes. So how do you encourage the courage People have to, to disagree? Know People have to know that. Once I go through that experiment in a class on decision-making, to say, now the next time you're in a meeting and you see that everybody is calling out the wrong line, it's so obvious. Just remember, remember this experiment, and that if you speak up, you might be the one, and then everybody in the room, in fact, maybe everybody in the room knows, but somehow they've been primed to say the wrong answer, or they thought that's what they should say. But if you have the courage to say, no, no, it's really line A, you might be the one to save the meeting, the decision, the organization, just by speaking up. So being aware of the power, the influence that just one voice has is usually enough for people. You can see them. They're writing that down. And that next time, because it's going to happen, you're going to say, okay, I'm going to speak up. Yep. So making that commitment to self to... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah knowing that you probably have more power than you think. I think that's a, a great place to end. <laughs> <laughs> so we have left a lot of empowered listeners out there, and we want them to go out and save the world, because that's how it begins. One voice crying in the wilderness. One voice standing up to say no. One voice saying, I think it's line A. That's enough. Linda, thank you so much. As always, great to talk to you. It's my pleasure, Shane. Thank you.